Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So usually, Recall This Book is ho- is hosted by Elizabeth Ferry and John Plotz. Uh, but today, uh, the podcast has two guest hosts. I'm Ajanta Subramanian, an anthropologist who works on caste and democracy in India and the United States. And joining me is Lori Allen, who's also an anthropologist who works on liberalism and international law in Palestine and Israel. This is the first episode of a three-part series on ethno-nationalism and fascism. So this first episode will be a conversation with a scholar of caste and ethno-nationalism in India, and the second will be with a scholar of the Israeli extreme right. And the third and final episode will be a conversation between the two of us and John Plotz, in which we reflect on the similarities and differences across the two cases. Today, we begin with Indian ethnonationalism, for which we're joined by Bal Murli Natrajan. Murli is professor of anthropology at William Patterson University. An anthropologist and engineer by training, Murli's research and teaching interests are on caste, class and gender, globalization and development, and nationalism and fascism. His books include The Culturalization of Caste in India, Identity and Inequality in a Multicultural Age, and a co-edited volume with Paul Greeno titled Against Stigma, Studies in Caste, Race, and Justice Since Durban. And more recently, Morley has written essays on vegetarianism and beef eating in India and on Hindu nationalism. And these essays explore the intersections of caste, religion, and nationalism. And Morley has also been very active in South Asia solidarity work in the US, uh, mainly focusing on issues of secularism, human rights, and neoliberalism. So welcome to the podcast, Morley. Thanks so much, Ajanta. Glad to be here, and hi, Laurie. Hi. Okay, so we wanted to start with your book uh, before sort of expanding the frame to talk about ethno-nationalism more broadly. Um, so first thing, the book is in many ways a uh, a very rich ethnography, right? It's a rich ethnographic account of uh, <laughs> one particular caste, uh, the Kumhar caste of potters, um, in the central Indian state of Chhattisgarh. Um, and it offers this account of how the lives and livelihoods of um, of the Kumars has changed over time. And one of the things that you argue very strongly is that um, Kumar elites, so the folks who no longer are practitioners of this craft, um, have taken to framing caste identity in cultural terms. Right. And you for you, there's a problem with this. So I wonder, can can we start by you fleshing out this argument for our listeners? So what is the problem? What's the problem with seeing caste principally as a cultural identity? Excellent. Uh, Could I take a step back and actually say something about uh, what prompted me to or what the problem was that I was grappling with in my own head that brought me to this kind of a book. Um, one of the key things that I was encountering in popular discourse, as well as in official discourse, as well 
as in some scholarly discourse on caste, was um, what mm-hmm. what I would say is uh, a um, liberal uh, understanding of caste uh, from an anti-caste position, which interestingly and <clears throat> very um, dangerously in some way coincided with the right-wing understanding of caste with right-wing too thinking of themselves as anti-caste. Uh, so I capture this as the five tropes um, somewhere in the book, mostly in the preface really, the five tropes that actually face us about caste today. And the, and the first one is that, well, <clears throat> caste has modernized and uh, it's even in some way democratized because of the political uh, ways in which um, uh, previously historically marginalized castes have come in a big way into Indian politics. And so we really need not worry much about caste today. It's a thing of the past. It's also got its economic equivalent, which which plays out uh, in some kind of an argument that says, well, for an underdeveloped economy like India, um, caste is actually good for the growth of capitalism uh, because uh, you have trust uh, when you actually make transactions and you save transactional costs. So there's a literature on uh, arguing that. And then there's a third trope, which is what I actually focused on, which is that um, caste is now no longer just the hierarchy. In fact, it is not the hierarchy. It has become from a vertical into a horizontal structure. And uh, it's just a benign difference. Mm. Uh, and uh, this this I call as the um, culturalization, which I'll say a little bit more about. Uh, but there are, uh, to these three, you know, political, economic, and cultural tropes, uh, I, I see two bookends. Uh, mm. One is that, well, admittedly, caste exists, but it is um, existing in a in a kind of a benign, normal way. It is defined. So it exists in those uh, uh, cute matrimonial columns where people ask for the same caste. And so it just exists in these privatized spaces. And that really doesn't uh, have a whole deal to dictate in terms of monopolization of wealth or inequality. You know, it just it, it it's just there. And and then on the other hand, there's another bookend which I call the the brutal abnormal. Uh, to mm. the benign normal, you have the brutal abnormal, which which has to um, admit that well, there are some incredible violent things that erupt uh, from time to time. And it's only from time to time, and therefore the even more uh, um, uh, pretty troubling word is the atrocities act. Atrocity uh, in some way connoting exceptional, extraordinary, whereas caste violence is ordinary violence, everyday violence. So uh, when those things happen, it always happens in some backward part of India, not in the rest of India. So this is the trope that I I was really struggling with, and I wanted to have a um, clearly left response, left egalitarian response to um, all of this, but I ended up focusing just on the trope number three, which is on the caste as culture. And of course, all of this helped me then formulate the understanding that identities and inequalities are actually two sides of this of a single process um, within caste. And <clears throat> that um, we have to pose the question and ask the question, how does caste 
uh, persist and what is the durability of caste, which then helps us understand how caste uh, legitimizes itself. And I think in the legitimization aspect, that is where I kind of unwrap some of the things on culturalization. So what indeed is culturalization, right? So um, the book is largely written against a scholarly trend that I saw and still see uh, of um, asking us to think about the transformations in caste as an ethnicization of caste. That is, um, instead of a vertical hierarchy, which is what we think of when we think about caste, uh, we are invited to consider that caste is now just uh, just about difference. It's on the horizontal plane. And uh, so we can devote ourselves to thinking about how caste has ethnicized. Now, that to me is not at all what is happening on the ground, uh, but it also, uh, uh, so for example, on the ground, there is hierarchies, there are all kinds of inequalities, and there are appeals to fairly traditional forms of belonging, such as blood and purity and things like that. On the other hand, it is a a shirking of what uh, scholars need to do, which is to distinguish between what what is happening as a social process and also bring in ideological aspects of legitimation as part of our analysis. So Mm -hmm. culturalization then is really caste repackaging itself as culture. Uh, Caste in some way taking up the grammar of Mm -hmm. culture in order to present itself as benign, horizontal, difference identity. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, what culturalization is, is a depoliticization of caste. It is, in fact, I have even called it a counter-revolution of caste. It It is the most recent form of the legitimation of caste. I was wondering if we could kind of segue from this conversation to your article on racialization and ethnicization. And there you're really addressing how Hindutva has this differential treatment of Muslims and Dalits uh, in how it's manufacturing hegemony. So you say that Hindutva relies on a kind of racialization of the Muslim as a racial other. And on the other hand, an ethnicization of the Dalit as an internal other. Um, but you point out how this boundary is, is really unstable. And you, you talk about kind of cow protection is one way that, that we can see that. Um, and I was just wondering if you could lay out that argument about rationalization and ethnicization for us and how you see that working. To get to this thing on racialization and uh, ethnicization, uh, when we think about the Hindutva project, and 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 we can talk more about how how we can understand it, one of the key things that we have to understand that it is not something that is just a recent electoral based successful um, triumphalist project. It is at least been hundred years, if not more, in the making. And I would actually say it's probably 130 or 140 years in the making. That is almost at the same time that the Indian National Congress comes into play, you have the formation of a right wing in the Congress, and that grows into something called the Hindu Mahasabha, and that grows and grows and grows. But it also taps into everyday life 
everyday cultural life that we all value dear. So one of the things that I do want to point out is, although I, I argue against the culturalization of caste, I am not arguing against culture. I am not arguing against cultural identity generally and things like that, right? Uh, one has to be careful how one gets read. Uh, but in this sense, uh, Hindutva has done probably the maximum amount of work. Uh, 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 well, I don't know if I should say maximum, but it has done a huge amount of work on the cultural register. And so when we come to this kind of an understanding, then we immediately see that the, the three pillars of uh, Hindutva ideology is uh, Hindu, uh, Hindi, and Hindustan. This is in their founding documents, ideologically reproduced, uh, culturally embodied, signified in just about everything that they do. And in that, the term Hindu is actually a racial term. Uh, it is, uh, so in this foundation itself, there is some way in which they tap into uh, folk theories of uh, stocks, racial stocks and things like that. And they uh, learn very clearly and there's enough you know, scholarly literature out there which, which talks about learning from um, the experiences of uh, the fascists in Italy and then the Nazis in Germany, but generally transposing the uh, Jewish problem in Europe to the Muslim problem in India. So Muslims then are the 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 racial other of Hindu, uh, and some other scholars, for example, like uh, Zahir Babar, uh, he has he has argued for a while that we should not think of Hindutva as uh, ethno-religious. It's really ethno-racial, or it's really a racial racial project in that sense. It's a racial nationalism and and something like that, but. Uh, racialization for Hindutva and ethnicization for Hindutva are two prongs that are uh, in some way weaponized uh, for two different populations that they desire in two different ways. Uh, whereas the Muslim in India, in the project of Hindu Rashtra or uh, um, the Hindu nation, which is the ultimate project for Hindutva, uh, the Muslim uh, can uh, uh, only exist as a secondary citizen or needs to be excised. Um, so discipline, punishment, and all kinds of um, oppressive technologies will be and are unleashed on the Muslim because that is the only uh, way in which Hindu Rashtra can come into being, or so I am arguing is the ideology at work of Hindutva. Um, that is, only Hindus uh, uh, own the nation, which is really Hindustan, which is a territory. And Hindi is the ethno-linguistic hegemonic identity, which is foisted from a language that 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 is actually in some ways scholars uh, um, are fairly clear that Hindi as a language is itself, uh, you know, of recent 
origins in some way there are multiple other languages which gets kind of fused and counted as if they are all hindi speakers but nonetheless it comes from a particular part of india which is the plains uh, the ganjadic basin and things like that and so you have a race a racial identity a linguistic ethnic identity and a territorial identity being fused together whereas muslims threaten the idea of a nation that well in 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 order to build a hindu nation you need to excise us we are we are here and we are a uh, you know 14 or 15% of the population we've been here from as long as anybody else has been here we've contributed in all kinds of ways with our labor but dalits are a thorn in a different way they challenge the idea of hindu uh they actually then challenge uh hindutva uh as to who is this hind that you are talking about we are not hindus of course a large number of dalits still continue to be counted as hindus and many dalits do practice certain forms that could be in some way syndicated into hinduism the worship of muruga for example uh, who's a who's a um uh, god who is very popular in south india um there are lots of dalits who actually um uh, worship muruga but the main point here is that dalits the only way for dalits to remain uh, 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 in some way amenable to hindu rashtra is for hindutva to uh, uh, in some way ethnicize them and this has really nothing to do with ambedkar's use of the word ethnicize when he said well we need to form a new identity not derived from caste that is truly ethnicization uh, where I, and that never really happened although ambedkar tried and he exited hinduism and therefore tried to make it into a buddhist or a neo buddhist identity but for hindutva they don't get into all that stuff they just want to say hey um dalits are just one of us they're just a different ethnicity uh caste is ethnicity we are a house of different ethnic groups look how wonderful we are and we're brothers and sisters and uh dalits therefore need to stay within the house of hindu rashtra uh, but dalits are recalcitrant so from time to time they will be deemed to be as anti-national as muslims they will also be deemed to be as anti-national as the even more permanent enemies of um hindutva who are the left broadly speaking uh, party left non-party left intellectuals artists uh, human rights advocates anyone who is for civil liberties anyone who speaks in some way in a voice of dissent can be and is actually put into jail with all kinds of acts of sedition that are from the colonial era so that is the tricky thing for hindutva they don't know what really to do uh, with either muslims or dalits although they know what they want to do with both of them they want one to leave and they want the other to shut up and put up there is so much um use of religion to whip up popular sentiment and i mean it's it's obviously been very effective right um, and and you know somebody like kustav jafarlo who's like one of the main sort of political scientists um who is working on the hindu right and has been you know for decades um he even makes the argument i heard him say in a in a podcast that he thinks that one of the 
ways that women have been recruited to Hindu, right, is via religion, right? That there's a kind of, uh, that religious conservatism, maybe paradoxically, has been a real attraction uh, for women. So I just, I'd like to hear you say more about religion and whether this is, you know, is this a movement that started out as more racial and territorial, but religion has become more prominent uh, as a sort of, you know, as a pivot of difference and as a kind of mobilization tactic? Like, so where is religion in this? I would I would say that religion has always been part of this, even though you rightly point out that its founders and founding ideologues didn't really get into religion in the sense that we think of as needing faith and devotion. The ones who are actually doing the work of Hindutva, uh, that is, folks who belong to part of that labyrinth network, um, they largely instrumentalize religion. And I'll just say one last thing, which, which is probably one of the most difficult and most emotive mm -hmm. issues uh, very much amongst those of us who are in some way self-declared, uh, 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 you know, uh, self-identified anti-Hindutva. Uh, I have consistently made an argument that it is the Hindutva project, the project of its ideologues, to equate Hindutva with Hinduism, the religion. Uh, I know Jafarullah has made some argument that early on it was not quite the case. But today, Hindutva's project is to speak for Hinduism, the religion, and all adherence to Hinduism, the religion, who are therefore Hindus. And so it would be a mistake to give that away. And so we have to have some way to say you could be a Hindu, and Hinduism is not Hindu. Uh, you could be a Hindu without being Hindutva, and you and Hinduism has many aspects to it that have really nothing to do with Hindutva. Uh, this should not be a hard task, given the incredible myriad of uh, beliefs, rituals that you know, without ecclesiastical structures, just get packaged as Hinduism. Uh, we 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 should remember also Hannah Arendt, who somewhere said, in some ways, the the space of religion was vacated by secular uh, Jewish left intellectuals, and in, and and I think we need to bear some of those learnings in mind. I'm I'm really glad you brought up Arendt there, Morley, because as you were talking, I was thinking about the parallel struggle among some anti-Zionist Jewish people to reclaim a Judaism that is a spirituality and a way of life that's full of ritual beauty that is unhooked from the Zionist project, which, as you know, has a lot of parallels with the Hindutva project. So I just wanted to toss that out there. I think that this is something which is so, it's kind of a puzzling thing, right? Like given given the heterogeneity of what comes under this umbrella of Hinduism, right? Uh, how, has, how has Hindutva been so successful 
um, at 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 convincing convincing people of this equation between you know the sort of ethno territorial conception and 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 religiosity. If you can just talk about where you see the effect of populism in relation to the elitism of Hindutva. Fascinating. I think Hindutva has been successful and it has failed or it has run up against its own limitations. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and in some way, the understanding of populism also uh, that Lori, <clears throat> you talk about Hindutva challenges us to think about what populism could mean, right? And so I want to just place these two things for us to keep coming back in some way. <clears throat> I think I'll start with the latter and then move to the former. So I know we, uh, uh, so I mean, Jafar Lowe's understanding of uh, Hindutva as ethno-nationalism is um, supremely important, useful, and it comes from probably one of the best scholars of Hindutva that we have today. <clears throat> but I also want to see it as ultra-nationalism. And I want to make the distinction uh, in a very, you know, maybe simple way, uh, because I think that suffices for now, uh, that, you know, whereas nationalism is really about, in some way, bringing people together and building a identity. And, and I'm, again, oversimplifying some of that, but just to make a hopefully a, a useful, insightful point. Ultranationalism is actually focused on naming enemies, demanding uh, constant allegiance to be proven and stuff like that. <clears throat> and it was ultranationalism in that sense. It's really not interested in nation building. It might appear from time to time to, to, to be for that, uh, but I would argue not at all. Uh, and we could do some analysis of materially what wealth has left India uh, uh, since the Hindutva has taken power, what kind of development has taken place, and things like that. So from 2014 to 2019, the election planks are very clear. 2014, there was a hope for development. Vikas is the term that was used in the Hindi language that is hegemonic to Hindutva. That's completely dropped out. There has been no vikas, uh, i.e. development, and so now it's just Hindutva, plain, plain old Hindutva. Uh, and so it's not only ultra-nationalist in that sense, it's, um, therefore, it's a brand of populism is, you know, authoritarian populism. Uh, that is that um, it, uh, and I want to, and I have used, I have found it very useful to go back to an old text by uh, Arthur Rosenberg, uh, who actually was from Brooklyn, I believe, you know, and uh, but uh, of course, uh, you know, had his had his own trajectory. And uh, Jairus Banaji writes about uh, Arthur Rosenberg, but <clears throat> Arthur Rosenberg, he has a very clear understanding that fascism is a mass movement. It is not just a you know political seizure of power and things like that, and that it it does have some clear things such as a anti-liberal um, uh, strain to it. it. And I think uh, he uses the term um, uh, counter-revolutionary capitalism, but we can just say neoliberal capitalism, for example, you know, just to capture some of the things that it is very anti-labor and uh, uh, therefore very neoliberal capitalism. 
but it also has some interesting other things. That is, it has it it calls for national renewal and it offers itself as the redemption. And that redemptive power is where I will try to connect with what Ajanta is asking us to think about, right? So there's something about redemption. There's something about, uh, and Stuart Hall, for example, in all his work in uh, on the UK and, and Thatcherism and things like that, one of the things that 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 uh, comes out from there is, well, I mean, there is a crisis in society, but this force comes and it really doesn't address the crisis, but it uses the crisis to offer itself uh, in some redemptive ways for a bunch of other things, and the crisis continues or even deepens. Uh, and <clears throat> so it's national renewal with that redemptiveness, uh, and uh, you... Uh, then uh, very clearly also have a stormtrooper kind of a paramilitary aspect to that. Uh, uh, so all of this comes together. In, in terms of way. the sort of populist uh, character of sorry, this, Ajinta, right? Do you want to say something? Um, what is what makes it authoritarian populist? So I mean, I, when we think about populism, often it is. I mean, the the the, the distinction that's drawn is between the people and the elites. This is not about the people and the elites. This is certainly about an enemy that the the, the yes. that the nation uh, is against, and the enemy is named as you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a moving target, right? It, it can be the Muslim, it can be the liberal, it can be the secularist, it can be any number of things. Um, but uh, the fact that this is a form of populism that is yoked to you know, counter-revolutionary capitalism. Like, this is not about class elites. The class elites are not the enemy, right? So can you say a little bit more about the sort of, the, the I guess, the class character of this form of, uh, of populism, which is quite different from, say, labor populism, yes. right? Yes. Yes, I think, <clears throat> so, I mean, of course, the classic thing is Laclau, and uh, so uh, making, you know, constantly reproducing uh, certain boundaries uh, within, right? <clears throat> Internal boundaries so that we have an us and a them. So I would suggest that Hindutva is very clear on the them. It is having a hard time constructing really? people. It cut for a second. Uh, you said people, people are, are re recalcitrant, that? sorry. Um, indisciplined, right? And, you know, they're all over the place. And uh, it's very hard to construct that people with the Hindu uh, Hindutva movement. So, and some parts of their commitment to anti-liberalism mm. and anti-labor or neoliberal capitalism makes them have to, you know, come down hard on folks who may otherwise be part of the people, mm. uh, right? And so it's rife with those types of internal contradictions. So if if we move from this to what are the successes, why has it been so successful? One thing is that going back to Hannah Arendt's thing about the house of Hinduism got vacated by a lot of us who thought of ourselves as secular and ended up really, uh, uh, of course, even non-believers, but ended up not paying any attention to their fault who is going to the temples, who is uh, attending these discourses and sermons. When I was doing fieldwork, yes, one of those radical um, militant <clears throat> uh, right-wing women 
साधवी रिथंबरा हर 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 स्पीच यूज टू बी ब्रॉडकास्ट इन माई नेबर्स हाउस एंड माई नेबर वॉज पार्ट ऑफ दिंदुत्व हिंदुत्व परिवार एंड शी वुड इन्वाइट मी फॉर um lunch all the time to have a discussion i somehow avoided it but i just want to say that one one thing is that who speaks for hinduism if one asks that question uh, hindutva is 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 a primary candidate not the only one thankfully but hindutva uh, is a self styled speaker for hindus and hinduism uh, and then the second thing that i want to offer is well <clears throat> although there are attempts to make uh, you know ram into a uh, you know a supreme god and uh, uh, you know and uh, things like that it it runs into problems right. uh, especially uh, especially in the south but not only in the south <clears throat> there are all kinds of people who raise questions about uh, this and gandhi tried that in a much more benign way ram rajya mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that too did not take some root uh there are ways in which hindutva uh, actually materially manifests uh, uh uh itself in the realm of uh, production of religious symbols uh yeah. in a constantly proliferating manner through the media through any other kinds of even of printing presses through so 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 there's a whole lot of money that gets pulled into that and someone who reads some of these things doesn't really get the full fledged toxic <clears throat> stuff the toxic comes in some kind of a uh, you know concealed manner it is ever so lightly introduced and uh, you know people who switch on the television and the number of channels that are devoted to religion is shot up as much as the film bollywood and hollywood um, and all of those channels so when they uh, switch that on you have to listen for some time and then you'll find some you know uh, hindutva drop in there or two and it's so we should start focusing not on the outright rabbit folks of which there are many but on the even more number of folks who are not so rabbit but who casually put in some stuff which in some way builds hindus as a people versus those who are not us <clears throat> Yeah, I've I've been thinking about I mean obviously there are all kinds of ways that people get sucked up into this and sutured into this project and one of the elements I've been very interested in is the role of basically these street thugs um whether it's the cow vigilantes or the love jihad policers or whatever and I've been thinking about how how does a movement convince so many especially young men to produce quite so much energy because this stuff takes effort to go out into the streets and do these things and i'm wondering about what kind of gratification is offered through the maybe we can call it the field work of hindutva of of these guys and i was reading this book by a journalist with a very ethnographic sensibility i don't know how you say her name uh, snitha punam a book called dreamers and she has a chapter called the angry young men where she focuses on especially a couple of guys who talk about how 
their role in Hindutva, the roles that they play, give them a sense of power, give them a sense of prestige in their neighborhoods, and it comes through expressions of violence and power over others. And so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about um, what the kernels of that longing for power, where those kernels come from, and what is the process by which Hindutva has grown those kernels? Lovely. Uh, I think there are very similar things on the ground happening, Lori, uh, like the things that you suggested. And 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 there are other authors too, you know, Scott Atron, for example, some of his 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 work, anyone who has done work on gangs, anyone who has all of these things that come together that is really not ideology only it's really the material social relations of belonging of having a support thing and things like that so hindutva has for a very long time built an array of, of organizations that work at the uh, lowest level uh, i mean administrative level you can you can think of in civil society you know small mohallas that are these uh, neighborhoods and they will be the first to respond or the second to respond, but definitely in the top uh, to respond to a crisis. They'll be the ones who will be uh, sought after to solve some kind of a really banal everyday life issue. And they build up these kinds of things. I think uh, uh, Thomas Hansen's work on the Shiv Sena, for example, talks about some of this stuff, that they actually have these shaka models, these small cells that are in every neighborhood and their job is not to preach their job is not to actually do ideological work they are that's for the pracharaks that's that's something else they are the ones who will do everyday integration of you know things like uh, uh, set up a gym uh, in a in they a services essentially is what they do they yes. actually help people that's and, right and i wonder if seeing how Hindutva groups have helped people is also a way for us to think about the cracks into the system or levers for offering an alternative system. Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, this is the job of the left, which the left has done for a long time in terms of organized trade unions and uh, various kinds of work from left groups, okay, uh, parliamentary as well as non-parliamentary left. Uh, but with the you know su successful onslaught that Hindutva has had on labor and any kind of unionism and collectivism, uh, uh, you know that space gets vacated, and it would be remiss uh, uh, in this discussion if we don't uh, bring in the issue of the uh, not just middle class but upwardly mobile and hugely successful now. Uh, capitalist classes uh, or even the managerial classes who have in some way uh, uh, participated through chest thumping about how India has arrived on the global scene and India as a successful economy has much to teach the world. And, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that's also part of this complicity that even if uh, uh, it is it is not the biggest thing for them to have a Hindutva identity for them. India is in some ways being represented by Hindutva. So it's not just Hindus being represented, it's also India. And that is normally with some kind of a 
very basic rudimentary not really deep anti-colonial which is really not anti-colonial it is actually anti-western type of a thing that is tapped into by uh, you know the social psychology of uh, hindutva it has mass appeal across castes as is regularly shown uh, not just in electoral uh, victories because one can think of electoral victories as being more instrumental in some ways mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, also i don't think we, we should assume that some castes especially subaltern castes are impervious right. to the attractions of hindutva right so I think we have to start wrapping up and we have all these other questions I wanted to ask you. Um, <laughs> but, but I think we've touched on so much. Um, I wonder, you know, since we're sitting in the United States, um, I wonder if we can end with a question about the United States um, and the difference between Hindutva here and Hindutva in India. Um, because one of the things that Laurie and I have been talking about is... Uh, is the some of the differences that we see um, in the way uh, Hindutva activists position themselves, um, especially relative to liberalism, right? Um, and maybe we can call it multiculturalism as well. I mean, which is how we started this conversation. So, uh, Hindutva discourse in India doesn't even bother to claim a kind of liberal mantle, right? In fact, it's anti-liberal and very explicitly so. Um, and conversely, when you look at the United States and the way these activists position themselves, they're making use of liberal ideals, right? Uh, and they, institutions. And institutions, right? They deploy the sort of language of religious tolerance, of minority rights, all sorts of things. Um, they're using the courts, right, to sort of argue for, on the, on the grounds of sentiment, right? Uh, Hindu sentiment. Mm. Um, they're using identity politics. Um, so is there, what, what do you make of this kind of two-pronged approach, right? Uh, to be sort of properly liberal subjects in one context and to be virulently illiberal um, in the other. Um, can you say something about that? Like, it, is there a sort of contradiction here that, that, those of us who are trying to combat Hindutva can 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 utilize, right? I mean, I I'd like to end on a on a more hopeful note, uh, <laughs> right? About sort of path about yeah, kind of oppositional strategy. Don't understand. Right? Don't misunderstand this. We don't think that liberalism is the hopeful is the note. answer. <laughs> yes, but it's just it, when we look at these very sort of different ways of positioning right uh this movement in the two contexts what do we what can we learn from that yeah um i think um there is a documented history of material um material aid mm -hmm. that goes in the form of money hard money and we've called it the saffron dollar in some of the works that have come out on actually um, uh, documenting that the amount of money that goes from here to various organizations that belong to the Hindutva uh, family of organizations. So I just want to yep. uh, say that that is the uh, foundational uh, 
you know, material reality, let's say, if not foundational. Right, you um, got to follow the money, yeah. That's right. So having said that, yes, there are contradictions. And yes, there are ways in which we can push at those contradictions because uh, of precisely the, the fact that there are many uh, elected and increasing number of elected representatives of Indian origin uh, and a, a very clear um, uh, clear and maybe growing um, set of uh, Indian origin people and hopefully little more heterogeneity than than before uh, who are now uh, uh, you know in the upper echelons of uh, corporate America. Uh, apart from that, we have of course the vast numbers of uh, middle range managerial uh, software, but also uh, working class uh, uh, populations of South Asian origin, Indian, Indian origin in this case. And I think in there, we can have a uh, way in which we will need to uh, work through the issues of the desire and even the demand for identities that are classically seen as religious uh, or ethnic uh, in in terms of linguistic-based ethnic identity within the diaspora population, but push the um, uh, uh, argument that one cannot benefit from liberalism here while uh, supporting uh, some, some kind of deeply anti- liberal project there. And I don't see any other way in which we can do this. It is even more important for us to be anti-caste, but not anti-Hindu. Mm -hmm. And the right wing, therefore, then will trip on their own petard, whatever, uh, <laughs> when, when, when it comes up with the Hindu phobia. And that's the kind of uh, strategic um, politics one needs to arrive at. I am afraid we are not there yet. Yeah. Uh, when we do anti-caste politics here, it frequently gives um, fuel for for the right wing. Mm -hmm. And uh, can we do it in a different way? I believe so. And it's not only logically possible, it is actually strategically uh, necessary. Um, so, so, so that is one way. And then we can also rein in, I think if we follow the money and put pressures in particular ways, we can rein in that kind of a flow that should never cease. Um, nobody who is in the US uh, should be seen as supporting some completely vile um, action somewhere else, and then pretend that we don't know about that, because this is increasingly being made visible by some very uh, arduous scholarship that is coming uh, out out with all of that. Excellent. You're here. All right. Okay. So sadly, podcasts have to end. They can't be endless conversations. But but I hope this is the beginning of a longer conversation, Murli. Um, that yes. You. Um, I have I have thoroughly enjoyed meeting meeting both of you, and I wish we had some time to meet John too. Yes. Well, maybe we'll all converge in real time somewhere, in a real place. <laughs> um, so just before we wrap up, uh, we would like to thank all the listeners of this podcast. 
Um, we really appreciate you for being with us for this hour and really hope that you will join us for the next two episodes because this is a three-part series. So thank you so much, Morley. Take care and be well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Recall This Book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla, and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.